Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And today Annie is taking over the mic to talk about some recent events and then a case that I have never heard of before. So if you want to uh, put on your detective cap and try to figure it out along with me, I'm sure I'll be interjecting thinking I know the answer. Even though I have no law enforcement experience whatsoever, I've just... You know, actually, Annie, do you think you would get credits for watching every single episode of Law & Order SVU there has ever been? Maybe half credit. All right. Well, then I'm a half credit detective. (laughs) But you you are good about calling it out. We don't share the scripts. So whenever I'm going through it and she calls it out, I'm like, how does she know that? But it's truly just because her little brain is always working and it's always fun to watch it play out. Actually, you said it watching it play out. And soon, guys, you will be watching these if you choose to. We will be starting our video content. Very exciting. And a lot more exciting updates throughout the month of October. We've sort of hinted at it, but there is a lot of fun stuff coming your guys' way. We are just so grateful for you guys taking the time to listen. So we wanted to reward you, I guess, with some murder, nightmarish things and and things that go bump in the night throughout the month of October. (laughs) So we are putting out some extra content for you, gearing up for some really cool things that are only possible because of all the people that have taken the time to listen to us. So we're so happy about that. But from happy news to sad yet, somewhat happy news. I I don't really know how to phrase this one. So I'm going to let Annie take over and talk about some true crime events that just happened this week. Yeah, this is the biggest piece of news I've come across in a while. Anand Syed has been released from prison after serving more than 23 years for the murder of Hay Min Lee after a Baltimore judge overturned the case on Monday. There's a podcast called Serial, and Sarah Koenig did a phenomenal job talking about this case back in season one. She actually launched that series back in 2014. With this case, right? Yeah. But it really reopened public's eyes. There's a lot of stuff that wasn't covered specifically in the press, which happened, as we know. And a lot of times law enforcement can't say what is going on. But she exposed a lot, and I appreciate her. Yeah, for sure. And you know what? I'm not talking about us because we are in our infancy. However, it has been really neat to see just what media attention can do and not traditional media. Like there's a lot of podcasts that are starting to get eyes on cases that people had kind of sort of given up on like that. I'm I'm trying to think of your own backyard with Kristen Smart. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. That trial is happening right now. And Paul Flores is being charged with murder and his dad, Ruben, is actually charged with accessory to murder for helping hide her body well and finally finally we got to do that case sometime once maybe once the trial is over and there's some conclusion to it but it's wild that like a podcast you're just talking about a story you think as we sit here in our homes and yet you never know who's listening you really Mm -mm. don't i really like up and vanish season two with Payne williams who's the host and he talks about crystal reisinger from crestone colorado i've been obsessed with that case I actually went to Crestone. I've been the past two years, and I'm not kidding you. It's because of that podcast. I go and walk around and like see the brewery that she worked at, and I even looked up her apartment number. And it's just so eerie being in a town that you know so much about based upon someone's hard work. Not only is our podcast in its infancy, but so is Annie and I's friendship. <laughs> we really need to discuss that at some point. But we do. Is that the place you went with your husband? And you were sending me all the pictures. Yes. And we're always like barefoot walking around. There's like hippies everywhere. It's such a place of peace. Supposedly the third eye is located there. So the energy is really powerful because back in the day, a couple bought a bunch of land and they basically said, if you have a religious organization, you can have free acreage in Colorado. 
in the San Luis Valley. And this valley is known for like UFOs. It's kind of by the great sand dunes of Colorado, but the energy there is unmatched. And it could just be because I go there with this mindset of like, I'm going to have a good time. It's going to be amazing. But I swear, even Avery smiles whenever she goes to Crestone. <laughs> a little confirmation bias from the dog. <laughs> Always. <laughs> but back to this big news piece, if you're not familiar with the case and you're sitting there going like, okay, who got released? Back in 1999, a high school senior named Heyman Lee disappeared in Maryland. A month after her disappearance, her body was found in a shallow grave in a city park, and it was determined that she'd been strangled. Her 17-year-old ex-boyfriend, Anand, was arrested for the crime, and within a year, he was sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years. The case against him was largely based on the story of one witness, his friend named Jay, who testified that he helped Adnan bury Hay's body. But Anand was all, has always maintained he had nothing to do with her death, so it's been like this back and forth between him trying to get justice, poor Hay's family wanting justice, and at the end of the day, I mean, Hay is not here anymore, which is heartbreaking. What year did you say that she went missing? She went missing in 1999. And then he was convicted? In 2000. Okay. And the reason I'm asking is is because I was just wondering how much of like racial stuff went into play here because I know after September 11th, the world was incredibly prejudiced um, to people that they shouldn't be. And given his background, I was wondering if that came into play with this wrongful, potentially wrongful conviction, because he is not being exonerated, correct? Correct. Um, prosecutors are saying that he's not exonerated. They're saying back in 1999. Okay, so he was charged in 1999 then. Sorry, that was a misspeak. That's okay. They're saying back in 1999, we didn't investigate this case thoroughly enough. We relied on evidence we shouldn't have, and we broke the rules when we prosecuted. So this was not an honest conviction. So they're almost claiming a mistrial after 23 years. Almost. And based upon the latest episode from Serial, Sarah goes in to say there's actually two other people of interest that fit this crime. There's more evidence against them. So they're kind of being like, okay, we rushed to judgment with a 17-year-old kid. Well, not only that, but off of, it sounds like their biggest piece of evidence was... His friend, Jay, saying, yep, I helped him bury the body. But then what did Jay have to gain from it? Oh, my brain's going. This will be yeah. interesting to see how this plays out because are they going to retry it? Not sure on that. Um, I mean, he was already he had already been charged. I actually get to double jeopardy a little bit in this episode. But okay. since he's already been charged for murder and he spent all this time in prison, I'm not sure if they can charge him again. Ooh, we will just have to keep our eyes out on this. I know it's been all over the news, but this is this is very interesting because without more information about the other two suspects, it just makes you wonder, well, what is the real story here? Mm-hmm. And the real family that I my heart goes out to is the Hayes family. They released a statement and their family lawyer named Steve Kelly, he reads it at this um, press conference. He said, for more than 20 years, the Baltimore City State's Attorney's Office has told the family of Heyman Lee that their beloved daughter and sister was murdered by Edna and Sayad. One week ago, for the first time, the family was informed that through a year-long investigation that is apparently still ongoing, the state had uncovered new facts and would be filing a motion to vacate his conviction. For more than 20 years, no one has wanted to know the truth about who killed Heyman Lee more than her family. The Lee family is deeply disappointed that today's hearing happened so quickly and that they were denied the reasonable notice 
that would have permitted them to have a meaningful voice in the proceedings. So sad. Yeah, that should not happen. No. For sure, the victim's family should always be able to speak and say whatever they want because they're speaking on behalf of those that have lost their voices. And you need to keep us up to date on this one because it is going to be very interesting to see how they handle this and where things potentially went so wrong in the first trial. Mm -hmm. And I have been trying to get his name right. It's a little bit difficult to say, so apologies if I mispronounced it. But I listened to Serial back in 2014 and then recently, and I kept trying to like memorize his name. So if I mess that up, I do apologize. The case I am covering today takes us to Florida, where a man named John Stagner lived. John was a 53-year-old maintenance worker for Orange County, and he lived on the property he maintained for the county. The property contained a few houses and structures, one of those being the Stagners. If you think of like a lighthouse keeper, that's kind of what it seems like. Gotcha. He lived a peaceful life with his wife, Dottie, and her mother also lived with them. Oh, Dottie. And John and Dottie had a great marriage full of love and happiness. John was described as being super hardworking, and he was an avid sportsman who loved to fish and hunt. He'd even bring his coworkers along and get them to embrace the wilderness of Florida, which good no, for him because <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's like pythons the size of school buses down there and I would never go. Um, I'm not a big fan of alligators or things that just like lurk under the water and then just come up and eat you. So I'm going to leave that to John and his buddies. Mm -hmm. On August 9th, 1992, John got a call about a tree that had fallen over due to a rainstorm. Because he was the lead maintenance guy, he had to leave his cozy, warm house and go take care of that tree. He was gone for a few hours, but eventually made it back home, and Dottie recalled seeing him walk in and heard on the TV to unwind. At that point, it was late, and she headed to her room to go to bed. They slept in different rooms because they didn't agree on the air situation. <laughs> John liked the windows open and more of that fresh air feel, and Dottie wanted the AC on. So they agreed to disagree, and they had their own bedrooms. I respect that so much. I know quite a few people that... You know, our husband and wife to have a really great loving marriage and sleep apart. And I am kind of, I'm I get it. it. Mm -hmm. I get it. If someone is a snorer, you could just you go in the other room. I'll, I'll text you if I want you to come over for a conjugal visit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like that. What's so cute is that Dottie always woke him up. So that night, Dottie falls asleep. She wakes up the next morning. It's now August 10th, around 5 a.m. She walked over to John's room to check on him and get him up, and the room was super dark, so she kind of feels around on the bed, and she touched his arm, and that's when she noticed it was really, really cold, like abnormally cold. She took a few steps back, fumbled for the light switch, and managed to get the light turned on, and that's when she realized that John had been horribly beaten. His face was completely smashed in. There was blood everywhere, and sadly, it was obvious that he was no longer alive. How loud is Dottie's air conditioning fan that she didn't hear this? That's a really good point. Unless, I mean, I guess unless he was knocked out from the first blow and then didn't make any yep. sound. Did I There's get that, it? There's a detective police <laughs> coming in flat. So Dottie immediately calls 911, and law enforcement rushed to the scene. Once they got there, they divided and conquered. Some investigators went to John's bedroom while the others started asking Dottie and her mother-in-law some questions. They wanted to know things like, where was John last night? Did you notice anything weird? Did you hear anything odd? 
Dottie was obviously in a state of pure shock, but she did manage to tell them that nothing was out of the ordinary. She didn't recall hearing anything strange, and she made a really strong point to emphasize that John always did a great job at locking up the house. He never forgot to secure the house. That was like his number one priority and never went to bed without doing so. While Dottie and her mom are giving their stories of the previous night, the other set of investigators pronounced John dead at the scene due to blunt force trauma to the head. From what they can guess after the initial look, John had been sleeping when he was attacked. I never read anything about defensive wounds, but they did find him laying in the bed, so their assumption kind of makes sense. An investigation officially kicks off that Monday morning. A team of investigators comb through the room, gathering anything that could have DNA on it, taking pictures and even videos of the scene. One thing I want to point out is that DNA was used at this time, it's 1992, but it was still kind of in its infancy, so even though the team collected items, they knew that it was going to be a long, lengthy process, but they did an excellent job gathering, documenting, and storing items with DNA. The number one question people have is who could possibly do this horrendous crime? John was an amazing, kind person and would literally give the shirt off his back to someone in need. At this point in time, it's Monday morning, John lives on the property, and his coworkers start showing up to John's house. As they showed up, they were all greeted with police presence. Law enforcement began asking his coworkers if there was anyone John had issues or problems with, and if there was anyone who would want him dead. Immediately. The name Ronald Cates comes up. He fired jo- him. Really close. He didn't okay, actually Okay, I'm going to shut up. I just get too excited. <laughs> John was actually kind of this father figure to Ronald. He really stepped in and helped Ronald and his family out because they struggled a bit. He would let Ronald borrow tools and do odd jobs. But Ronald started having trouble getting those tools back to John because he was actually pawning them off for some extra cash. Oh. Yeah, police learned that Ronald had a drug problem and that he was especially addicted to painkillers. Yeah, and those don't come cheap. No. John had reportedly confronted Ronald about the last round of missing tools, and the two got into a heated argument. Obviously, law enforcement want to talk to Ronald. He had a relationship with John. They had this heated argument a few days prior, and it just seemed a little bit suspicious. Did, were they investigating, you know, they always say the person closest to you. Were they investigating Dottie or was it just pretty obvious? It was pretty obvious that she was like very in a state of shock. I That was my first thought too, because we always say it's like the people, you know, you start at ground one. I think they did their initial round of questioning. They could tell she had no idea how this happened. Right. And then as soon as they heard about Ronald Kate, literally that same morning, they shifted their eyes to him. That makes sense. Two detectives head over to Ronald's house and they knock on his door and his 13-year-old daughter answered and she was visibly upset and shaken. Her face was red and it looked like she had been crying and she's kind of hiding behind the front door and she seemed really scared. Police asked her if her dad was home and she tells them, no, he isn't here right now, you just missed him. She said he does live here, but they came at a bad time. Police head back to their car and they sit on the street to monitor the house. Eventually, they needed to make a phone call, so they drove away to go use a payphone. No cell phones at this time. And they weren't gone for a long time, but when they come back, one of the trucks that had been in the driveway was no longer there. Oh, he, Ronald was there he the was hiding out. time. Mm-hmm. They go back up, they knock on the door, and his daughter confesses that she lied to them because her dad told her to. 
This is giving away a lot of red flags. Eventually, they do manage to catch up to Ronald and they begin questioning him and talking to his family. He gave one timeline of events and his family gave a completely different version. So there's a lot of inconsistencies with Ronald's story. His family gave statements that his behavior was odd on the day of the crime. He was erratic and irritable. And his coworkers echoed in that statement because they noticed something was off too. During one interview, Ronald's wife, Kathy, hinted that she was the only one who was bringing in money and she was open that Ronald had a drug problem. What's really sad is both her and her daughters gushed about John. They completely adored him. Kathy said at one point they were homeless and John stepped in and helped them get back on their feet. So she had nothing but amazing things to say about this friend. Despite the evidence, Ronald was a frequent visitor to John's home. His DNA and fingerprints were everywhere. It was impossible to match Ronald to the crime. They could absolutely match him to the house. He had been there hundreds of times visiting his friend, but they weren't able to develop enough probable cause to arrest him for the murder. Well, and I understand they got in a heated argument, but you would think John would be the aggressor in this. Like, he's the one whose tools are going missing. He's not getting his stuff back. And from all accounts, he sounds like a pretty, you know, level-headed, sweet man. Mm -hmm. So what is the actual motive then for Ronald to do this? Like it just the fight escalated because of whatever reason? That's the thing is at this point, they don't have a weapon and they don't really have a motive for why Ronald would do this to John. Yeah, he's I mean, he's taking advantage of John, but he's also if he did this. He's killing off his his money grab. Good point. Sadly, the case goes cold at this point. We hear a lot about cases where they have a potential suspect, but they don't want to try him. And this is because of the double jeopardy clause that I hinted to earlier. This clause is in the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and it prohibits anyone from being prosecuted twice for substantially the same crime. The relevant part of the Fifth Amendment states, no person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. Let's just say that they did take Ronald to court for the murder of John and the jury comes back and they say there just isn't enough evidence he's going to be acquitted. Ronald can never be charged for that murder again. So it's a really risky move to move forward. The caveat is that Ronald could be charged for lesser crimes if they tried to retry him. Let's say he got away with assault, trespassing, like they can add up those things. But when you think about the smaller crimes length of punishment versus a murder charge, it's truly nine day difference. I totally get the double jeopardy thing because you don't want to just have a suspect that you're basically going round and around after trial after trial and spending not only taxpayers money, but potentially if the person is innocent, they are wasting their life in in these constant trials. So I understand Mm -hmm. it, but in some circumstances, I wish... That could be way. It's painful to, to know that Ronald was able to just kind of move on with his life. Three years later, in 1995, Ronald had a mental breakdown, and he actually confessed to murdering John. During this confession, he also made comments about murdering historical figures and said some really obscure things. Due to his mental state, investigators were not comfortable taking this to trial because they were afraid his confession wouldn't hold up in court. Well, right. Yeah, you can't say I killed John and Abraham Lincoln. Exactly. It's just way too risky. And I think law enforcement was still kind of looking at Ronald like, oh, we know something isn't adding up here. But that was just like a, a sad mental breakdown that. Well, drugs will do that to you. Don't do drugs, kids. 
Years later, in the early 2000s, Ronald and his family left Florida and they moved to the Charlotte area in North Carolina. At this point in time, his daughters were adults and they started kind of distancing themselves from their father. There was evidence that they didn't have the most stable upbringing, and I read statements from the daughters and wife that they had a very strained relationship with Ronald. 20 years later, in March of 2020, which was exactly 28 years after John's murder, investigators had some time on their hands. We all know what happened in March of 2020. (laughs) The panorama. Yep, (laughs) panorama. And they started looking through old cold cases. And at the time, a lead comes in from Ronald's family, an unlikely source. Ronald's daughters and wife want to talk to law enforcement about how John's death affected them and how they really felt burdened by this event and by what they know. Because they like this man because he they helped loved him out, him. right? They loved him. It was like he was a father figure not only to Ronald, but I think to the whole family. His wife, Kathy, told law enforcement that every year around certain dates, specifically July and August, Ronald starts acting odd, and it's been like that since 1992 when John was murdered. Remember, he was murdered in August, so this timeline is making sense. She also opened up that she lives in total fear of her husband and that he was abusive to her and the daughters. When you think back to how much John helped her and her daughters, I think she kind of felt like she owed him something. It had been three decades since John died. There was no closure for the family. And I think it was just totally eating away at her. You know, I've heard of people having a year to send a wedding gift. But if you want to pay someone back, especially someone that did a lot of nice things to you and you know about their murder, maybe don't wait 30 years. I know. I can only think that she was just terrified living with him. I mean, he had a drug problem. He was abusive. It sounds, I'll get into it oh, a little bit. Oh, this is but, his wife. Yeah, this is uh, this is Ronald's wife, Kate. Or Kathy, excuse me. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Ronald's family you. actually is the one who was like, we got to talk to you about something. And it was their dad and husband. Kathy was very comfortable talking to investigators, so much so that investigators kind of got protective of her. They were super worried about her safety. And they made sure that everything she said was super confidential until they felt they could make a move on Ronald. One investigator started talking to one of the daughters and got a feel for the relationship Ronald had with his family. The investigator learned that these daughters were asked to do some odd things when they were teenagers back in 1992. One of those odd things was they helped their dad burn clothes on a tree trunk a few days after John's murder. Nope, nope, go to Goodwill. Go to Goodwill. Why are you burning clothes? Yeah, and imagine being 13 years old, terrified of your father. He tells you, number one, lie. The police are here. Tell them I'm not here. Number two, help me burn these clothes. Like, their little brains are just going circles probably. but. They're that young. Like, what do you expect them to do? But at this point, they're older. They're adults. So they're coming forward. Like, we actually want to just want to tell you what happened. And then you can kind of make your own assumption from there. The sisters started corroborating each other's stories. And they knew right from wrong at this point. They were not going to give up on this case and gave a ton of testimony of what they remember. In April of 2022, so just a few months ago, Ronald was Baker acted into a hospital in North Carolina. The Baker Act encourages the voluntary admission of persons for psychiatric care, but only when they are unable to understand the decision. While he was at the hospital, he confessed to a nurse that he killed a man in Florida back in 1992. So another confession. The nurse called in a security guard who listened to Ronald talk, and then the hospital called the North Carolina Police Division. When the cops got there, Ronald actually told them to turn on their body cameras, and he gave a 10-minute-long confession about this crime. 
During this confession, he said that he beat a man with a stick and he killed him. I mean, this is signed, sealed, delivered, right? Yeah. A stick? Yeah. And I'll get into, like, potential murder weapon, but it kind of goes up with how, you know, poor John's face was completely bashed in. It's kind of a brutal thing to think about. After hearing this confession, the North Carolina investigators tracked down John's case from 1992, and they notified the Orange County Sheriff's Office that they had this guy who's claiming he's a murderer maybe come up and talk to him. The Orange County investigators headed up North Carolina, but when they met with Ronald, he completely clammed up. He didn't want to talk, but they had that uh, handy body body cam. cam footage. So at that point, the attorney chief in Florida was on board with prosecuting him. And they arrested him on August 5th of this year, not too long ago. My birthday. Oh, it's a good birthday gift. Justice. You're welcome, John. <laughs> Investigators went back to the crime scene folders and dug around the notes and findings. Like I said in the beginning, they did a really great job of keeping all this DNA, taking photos and videos. What they were trying to do was match pieces of Ronald's confession to photos or videos that they have in the case findings. Using the evidence to like corroborate his story. Yeah, and remember that stick reference he made? Yeah, that seemed odd to me. In evidence, they have a stick wrapped up and preserved. And the family of Ronald actually said that he had a walking stick that he used daily, and it matched with what they have in evidence. They attempted to do DNA testing, but there wasn't enough DNA on the stick, basically saying it probably wasn't the murder weapon because there would be a lot more blood. But the family is totally certain that's their dad's. And the daughters actually said... Back in the day, he had coached them and said, don't ever talk about that walking stick. I lost it. It's gone. But what investigators think is that he actually was fleeing the scene. He left that piece of evidence there. We have the burning clothes statements. We have two confessions. We have the past, specifically their last known interaction. Everything together is pointing to Ronald Cates. But how did he get in the house? I think he had it. Either he had oh, a key he or for him. he worked. He didn't work for him. Remember, he, they were just friends. Oh, gotcha. Okay. He was kind of like that father figure. But my guess is, you know, it's said in reports that he had been over there hundreds of times. He probably had a key and let himself in. Or he knew where the key was hidden. Where the hideaway key was. Yeah. Oh, don't tell people where the hideaway key no. is. No, no, no. He probably attacked John while he was sleeping. Annie, where's your hideaway key? <laughs> I actually do have one. It's pretty obvious. I'm actually going to go uh, revisit that location. Yeah, rethink that one. <laughs> yeah. The Orange County Sheriff's Office cold case team brought charges against Ronald Cates on August 10th, 2022, exactly 30 years after he killed John Stagner. He was arrested on August 5th, but fully charged five days later. Ronald is currently 64 years old, and he is charged with first-degree murder. He is waiting to be extradited back to Florida for trial. But I think, like, the happy piece of this case is that the one family that is so appreciative is John's family. He didn't have kids, but John has a niece that he was really close with. Um, he actually walked her down the aisle on her wedding day. Mm. And the niece said that they're appreciative of the Cates. Ronald's wife and kids who came forward all these, you know, these decades later and just said, we want to talk to you about what happened on that night and what happened in the weeks afterwards because they just had this feeling something was wrong. And I think they all kind of stood together. And um, the niece says they don't fault the Cates at all. They really continued to push the case forward. They never gave up. They were really open about what they remember. Well, and I jumped to a quick conclusion because I think I misunderstood you, but it definitely makes sense. If you're married or the daughter of an abusive partner or abusive father, It, yeah, of course at 13, you're going to be too terrified to do anything mm -hmm. because of what repercussions are going to come your way. And I don't even think at 13, you might think, oh, this is really odd. Why am I burning clothes? But you wouldn't 
necessarily jump to my dad murdered someone. You definitely wouldn't want to think that. I mean, that's such a scary thought. But also, you look at how abusive he was to them. Yeah. It, either way, it was just that must have been a really scary time for that family. Mm-hmm. At the time of the arrest, Kate was still married to Ronald. I think she still is. I haven't seen anything in the news about them getting divorced. But I think she especially lived all those years knowing that she was the adult. She needed to do something. And even if it was just giving her honest testimonies and memories, that's all she needed to do. And then she kind of let law enforcement handle the rest of it. But they all loved John so much. And they always talk about what a terrific guy he was. So he was truly a bright light that was taken way too soon. This is a case that we will keep everyone updated on. The trial is supposed to start sometime in the next year. There's no date yet. But I kind of stumbled across this one and just thought, I'm not doing a cold case this time. Thank I'm giving you. you guys some justice or some uh, some closure. <laughs> well, it sounds definitely like they got their guy, but I still go back to the motive. And it will be interesting as the trial plays out that maybe we'll get an answer to that because that part of it doesn't align up for me. No, I think he de- he definitely has some remorse. I mean, he's made two confessions over the course of since 1992. I think people can change, right? People can change, even though he had a drug problem. And he might just be feeling horribly guilty about that one night, that one thing that happened that completely took away his friend. Yeah, and we might be giving him too much grace, but I do want to point out, like, drugs obviously alter your state of mind. That's kind of the whole point of them. Mm-hmm. So maybe as, you know, I don't know, but maybe as he's grown up, this has been haunting him a decision he made when he wasn't in sound mind. And I wonder if that will come into play when it comes to sentencing and the trial as well. I'm super, super curious. This was kind of a shorter episode, but don't worry because we're about to overload you with content. You guys are going to be sick of our voices (laughs) and maybe soon sick of our faces. You got a redhead and a brunette. We're walking into a (laughs) podcast studio. (laughs) We are. Oh, that's the news. I will share that. I'm so excited. So we've been, we're going to keep teasing what's coming down the pipeline. Um, Like we said, there's going to be a lot of episodes coming out for October. It will be a little bit different than our normal true crime centered. We're going to talk a little bit about the paranormal. We're going to talk, I'm specifically going to talk a lot about some pagan stuff, some mythology, things of that nature. I know Annie will be touching on that too. We're just going to have fun with all things Halloween-y. But Annie and I are getting a new space. So instead of me sitting in Blake's house and in my little podcast room and her in her living room, we will be podcasting together more often. Cannot wait. And we will be having a space to do that. So if you aren't already, please follow us on Instagram at A Case of Sunday Scaries because while I like to think that watching two episodes of HGTV has given me all the home Um, decor (laughs) knowledge I need. We are going to be asking for your guys' advice and input as we put together our first podcast studio. And we are doing it just Annie and I. And and quite frankly, if I can recruit some people, that'd be great. What'd you (laughs) call the room? The she shed. The she shed. Yeah, I have a whole she shed. Um, You don't say that after a glass of wine. It will probably come out wrong. But (laughs) we are so, so stinking excited to actually be in studio together and create a new space for this podcast and hopefully bring you guys some really great content, not only for the month of October, but moving forward with video content as well. So keep your eyes out. And again, follow us on Instagram because we are going to need some decorating help. I am sure of it. But as always, until then.